Please open God's holy word to the second of Peter's letters, Second Peter chapter 1. Our focus this morning will be on verses 5 through 11. I'll be reading verses 3 through 15. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are unworthy sinners, everyone saved by your grace towards us in Christ. And so it is, not for anything in us, but upon the basis of who He is and what He has done, we plea that Your Word would come with power conveying knowledge that grace and peace might be multiplied to us, that we might be godly, holy, persons of virtue. That Your promise, Your, your promise towards us in Christ as it is reflected on, would be used by you as the reason for our every effort at every one of these things. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Beginning in 1993, extending all the way into 2005, David Wells wrote a series of four books that are a piercing analysis of evangelicalism, uh, 
and the cultural forces that brought us to where we are. In the third of that series, Losing Our Virtue, Wells ties out this transition from speaking of character to speaking of personality. Think of who we follow, who we idolize, who we look up to. Picture some celebrity that has great fame and ask yourself, is, is all of that more a reference towards their character or their personality? You see this not only in the world's politics and celebrity culture, you see this mimicked by the church. The leaders that are so esteemed, are they esteemed more so for their personality or their character? The persons who hold positions of leadership, did they get there because they meet the requirements of character as unfolded in, in Timothy? Or is it more so just an issue of personality, status? Alongside this, Wells notes that we made a transition from speaking of virtues to values. Virtue, the virtues, suggest something that's transcendent, something that's beyond ourselves, something that's absolute, a reference point that determines this is right and this is wrong. Values have their reference point, though, in ourselves. So the Hindu values one thing, the Muslim values another. The Christian's yet another. As C.S. Lewis notes it with this, we are creating men without chests. We've fought to educate the mind, but we haven't instructed the heart as to how it should feel about those things we're thinking of. There is no virtue. Instead of telling children how they should feel, we ask them how they feel. And then, lest we squash their personalities that we wish to bloom, we affirm those feelings. Because we don't want to squash the personality in any attempt to build character or imbibe virtues. And so Lewis brilliantly wrote, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chest and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. Well, here, Peter doesn't bid geldings be fruitful. Peter goes further than simply holding out the virtues as virtuous. Here you find not only virtues, but virtues that by God's grace are made attractive to the heart. In our text, we have a virtue list. This list is the focus of, of the passage of verses 5 through 11, it, it's, it's where all the energy keeps coming back to. You can see this at the repeated references to these, verse 8. 
For if these qualities, verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities, verse 10, if you practice these qualities, verse 12, I intend always to remind you of these. So as you're reading this passage, these cannot be ignored. And you'll see that these are no optional values. These are virtues. But before we deal with these, we have to remember those. That is, those promises, those two grants in verses 3 and 4. This grant of all things that pertain to life and godliness. This grant of these promises through which we're partakers of the divine nature. These grants are the reason for these virtues. And so verse 5 tells us, for this reason, the reason of these two grants. These because of those, these virtues because of those two grants. This is a fundamental biblical principle. These because of those. Before you can understand the command, you need to understand the promise. And what you need to see is that it's not that the promise is for the command in the sense of the promise is given if you obey the command. No, but the promise is for the command in this way. It is the promise that fuels, that energizes. It's the promise that God uses to produce this obedience to the command. That's the motive for this command. Many churches are thick on command and thin on promise. And paradoxically, it's the churches that are squishy theologically, that are soft doctrinally, that are the ones that are heavier on law than they are on grace. Show me a church that's a-doctrinal, a-theological. They don't really talk about those things. And I will show you one that is anti-promise. If you're going to teach the promises of God, you have to deal with doctrines like propitiation, substitution, atonement. You have to deal with concepts like covenant and federal headship. Otherwise, you're not really dealing with the promises but it takes zero doctrine at all to preach five steps to a better marriage. That's all law. Not only so, it's not even God's law most of the time. It's just made up. Oh, it might be distilled in some way from biblical principles. But here's what happens. When you don't teach God's promise you don't even then really teach God's law either. You get shorted on both. So it is that so many get neither God's grace nor His law. Whenever God gives His law to His people, it comes as grace on top of grace. This means there must be grace already there for it to come on top of. If this foundational gospel grace is absent 
then the only kind of grace that the law can convey is that which convicts, that which crushes, showing us our need of Christ. But whenever God gives His commands to His people, to those He's redeemed, He prefaces it in this way. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Not I will be, but I am your God. I am Yahweh your God, the covenant name of God. So Peter, you see here, is writing to those who stand righteous in Christ by faith, verse 1. And on top of that grace, on top of that grace, he grants, he gives, he graciously bestows all things that pertain to life and godliness, verse 3. And upon the basis of his glory and excellence, he grants promises through which we partake of the divine nature. And for this reason, Upon the basis of those two grants, we are to make every effort. So all of our effort, do you see, is just a further expression of faith in Christ. Not confidence in ourselves. This is the basis of true obedience unto God. Not to merit. Not to gain promises by obedience but to gain obedience by His promises. Now, what are these things that are listed here in verses 5 through 7? I've already referred to it as a virtue list. We might also speak of them as the fruit of the Spirit, as many of these in a similar list are referred to in Galatians 5. We could use the neutral term that the ESV inserts. It's not that it's there in the original text. It's just put in there to help the English read better. Qualities. They are just simply referred to in the original language again and again as these. Or, although godliness is within the list itself, you need to also see that it's over the list. Remember, it's for this reason. What's the reason? He's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. These things, this list, are things that pertain to life and godliness. Verses 5 through 7 tease out what it means to believe and act on verses 3 and 4. Do you believe that He's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness? If so, for this reason, make every effort at these things. These things are godliness. So are you beginning to see why it is? If you don't understand the promises, you cannot understand the command. God commands what He's promised. He's granted everything that pertains to life and godliness. Therefore, make every effort at Godliness. Augustine prayed, My entire hope is exclusively in your very great mercy. Grant what you command and command what you will. That is a most biblical prayer. So these are a life, these are 
the life and godliness that are promised. For that reason, we're to make every effort at them. A deep knowledge of God's promises does not make one lax towards God's law. A deep knowledge of God's promises makes you zealous about God's commands. If you're not zealous about God's commands, you don't understand His promises. Now, how does this list work? You notice it's built like a staircase. Supplement your faith with, and and it builds like a staircase. And though it's built like a staircase, you're not meant to climb it as such. This is a rhetorical device to organize what he's saying here. Think of it like the food pyramid. No one looks at the food pyramid and thinks, I have to eat all my vegetables before I can get to that bread. And then I have to eat all my grain before I can have any cheese. No one approaches the food pyramid in that way. They go at it all at once. And it's the same way with the staircase. It's, a, it's this organizational device, and you're to understand, I'm to go after, make every effort at these things all at once. Some have tried to make a great deal out of the structure and order of this passage, but I think it's to no avail. These aren't sequential, as though you have to master some degree of knowledge before you even attempt self-control. Come to Sunday school a few more times before you try to stop that sin in your life. You need a bit more knowledge first. No, it doesn't work that way. It's impossible to go at it this way. If your virtue knows no self-control, it's not much of a virtue, is it? Likewise, if your godliness is absent of love, it isn't very godly. You're to add these to your faith, not like figures in a ledger that have to follow some kind of order, but the way that a young couple accumulates stuff. Here a little, there a little, some of this, some of that, some more of this later, some more of that later. And even with that, though, again, let's go back to Galatians 5, where many of these same things make it into the list there, referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. Notice there it's the fruit, not fruits. It's singular, not plural. The fruit of the Spirit. You see, whenever you add any one of these things, whenever you grow in any one of these things, whenever you're pursuing and realizing any one of these things, you're going to realize that there's been growth. There's been an increase in every one of them. You cannot grow in self-control without having grown in virtue and godliness. You cannot have grown in love without being a more godly person. Let's then look a bit more in focus at each one of these. Faith is where we begin Because faith is where we began. John MacArthur comments, saving faith is the ground in which the truth of Christian sanctification grows. He calls for us to supplement our faith. If you don't have faith, you can't supplement it with these things, which is another way of saying that this list is rooted in God's promises. Faith, trust in God, What is faith? It's belief, it's trust, it's not blind belief, it's not believing whatever you want to believe about God. And it's not trusting God for what you want Him to do, it's trusting Him for what He has promised to do. It's it's believing in who He has revealed Himself to be. So we begin with faith, and to faith we are to supplement it with virtue. Virtue can be translated goodness or moral excellence. 
It's the same word that you have translated as excellence in verse 3 in reference to Christ, his glory and excellence. So this has the idea of moral excellence. Then comes knowledge. Now regarding knowledge, some want to make a distinction between knowledge as we have it here and as it's referred to in verses 2 and 3. And indeed, there are some different Greek words that are used throughout the letter, and some want to make a distinction between this kind of knowledge and that kind of knowledge. So as to say that the knowledge that you have in verses 2 and 3 is saving knowledge of Christ. And this knowledge here that we're to supplement uh, our Christian walk with is, has the idea of knowledge that's related to wisdom, living rightly unto God, knowing His will, and so forth. Uh, here's the problem I have with that. The, the knowledge that you, indeed, verses 3 and 4, speak of this knowledge that we have of God that happened at that moment of our salvation. But I think there's a, a decisive and progressive nature that permeates this whole chapter. We'll tease that out some more later. That there is this moment whenever you come to know God, you come to know Christ, but you know Him covenantally. You know Him relationally. Whenever, whenever God saves you, it's not as if you're just saved and, and you've known something of what He does. No, when He saves you, He's brought you into covenantal knowledge. Saving knowledge is covenant knowledge. It's relational knowledge. You know Him as Savior and you know Him as Lord. You know Him as God. He is your God. And so that's not a, not a knowledge that's static. It's dynamic. It's growing. It's relational. And that's exactly, I think, what Peter wants us to see here. This one you've come to know. You, you haven't known everything about him in that instance. This is something that progresses and, and increases in your Christian walk. Next, you have self-control, which is largely self-explanatory. That doesn't mean it's simply done. Paul said, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Hold on to that thought. I exercise self-control lest I be disqualified. I think you're going to see that very idea teased out in this text. The wise man told us, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. This disqualification is going to show you the kind of utter destruction that a complete absence of self-control can lead to. Next, steadfastness. Other translations you have endurance or perseverance. James puts meat on the bone when he writes, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So steadfastness has this idea of bearing up under pressure or holding fast in the midst of a tempest. Paul encouraged the Thessalonians telling them, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Next, godliness, as we saw in verses 3 and 4, speaks to piety, devotion unto God. Remember whenever Paul exhorted Timothy to train himself for godliness? 
It says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Next, you have brotherly affection or brotherly love. It comes from uh, the, the Greek word here is the word that we get our word Philadelphia from, brotherly love. Peter explained something of the source and nature of brotherly love in his first letter, 122. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Then finally, Peter ends with love, which you remember is what Paul spoke of as the greatest of these. You see, while I don't think we should make too much of this order, I think there is something to this list beginning with faith and ending in love. Paul ended a similar virtue list in Colossians 3 saying, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You compare this to other virtue lists and and you see in the New Testament, not any one of them is meant to be comprehensive or exhaustive. These are simply representative. This is just a, a stair case that Peter's put before us and said, pursue these things, grow in these things. And I think the very idea of presenting them in this staircase idea is, is that there's to be this forward progress and, and yearning for more and more in our Christian walk because of this great promise. And we're to make every effort at these for multiple reasons. The promise is one we've already found, unfolded, but notice this command is surrounded by reasons. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities. Verse 10, therefore, further into verse 10, for if you practice. Verse 11, for in this way. All these reasons should work in us so that we want to make every effort at these. Or we could say that all these reasons are a kind of knowledge. A kind of knowledge that should lead towards godliness. We're to make every effort at these. Here's this next reason. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have this if-then statement. You have a conditional and a consequence. And the condition is that these things are ours and are increasing. This is that kind of definitive, progressive thing I was talking about. This is true with all these virtues. There's this definitive kind of way that these things are yours. And yet there needs to be this increasing aspect to them. The condition is that we both have them and are increasing in them. You might have some of these right now. You simply have them. The question you need to ask yourself, though, is are you growing in them? Are you pursuing them? Do you desire them? If you're not progressing, you'll find that spiritual atrophy regarding these virtues sets in very quick. These virtues are long in building. 
and quick in deteriorating. And this can wreck our conscience in some ways. You need to realize this. Whenever you're looking for growth in virtues, look at the past five years. And whenever you're looking for a kind of lapse spiritually, look at the past three days. And the consequent is that if we have these and are increasing in them, we will be kept from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this knowledge you have and making every effort at these things keeps you from being ineffective or unfruitful in this knowledge, this covenantal relational knowledge that you have of God that should be increasing. It's making every effort so that it is increasing that keeps you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Ineffective like a screwdriver with a stripped head that can't bite into anything. It's not useful. You have a kind of knowledge, but it's of no use. Or a barren, unfruitful land, burned over land, salted land that bears no fruit. And what it means to be ineffective or unfruitful is untied, it is unfolded in the next reason given in verse 9. For whoever lacks... So you could almost read it this way. If these qualities are yours, if these qualities are not yours, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, here in the ESV and many modern translations, they try to smooth over something that seems a bit bumpy in the original language to them. So nearsighted that he is blind. But the original order is he's blind, nearsighted, having forgotten. And I believe that the reason why it's that way, why Peter wrote it this way, blind, nearsighted, having forgotten, is that each successive word explains the previous one. How are they blind? They're blind because they're so short-sighted. How short-sighted are they? They've forgotten the fundamental and most basic principle of their Christian life, that they've been cleansed. If salvation is a big eye chart, if the Christian life were this big eye chart, with the big E being effectual calling, the very beginning of the experience of their salvation, and the fine print at the very bottom being glorification, that the saints have to get really close to the chart before they realize that bit, they can't even read the E. They're so short-sighted, they can't see the most fundamental beginning place of their Christian walk. Many claim to be cleansed from sin who do nothing but wallow in it. But being cleansed from our former sins means not only our guilt being washed off, but in part, and more and more so as we approach our glorification, our corruption being washed out. Not only our guilt washed off, but our corruption washed out. The idea of being cleansed from our former sins means that was an old way of life that's been washed off. Listen to the way this is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were 
some of you. What made the difference? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. See, baptism is a picture of this washing, which in Romans 6, Paul says, is a picture of our being united with Christ in His burial and resurrection. Here's the implication then of your being washed. Paul says you died to sin. Now, in these verses, Peter's making a judgment of charity. That is, these persons say they know Christ. These persons say that they were cleansed. These persons say they are Christians. And so this judgment of charity is simply saying, perhaps they are. But there's nothing to indicate it. So at this point, I think, is what Peter's going to tell us. This virtue list has a mirror image in the false teachers as they're presented in chapter 2. And so see how the end of chapter 2 correlates with what you're being told here, 220 through 22. For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, do you hear washing and knowledge of Christ there? They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. That phrase is critical for understanding, I think, what's involved here. Their last state is worse than the first. If, the, if washing is as simple as, I was washed and saved, if it's that simple, then their latter state isn't worse than the first. They've come to deny all this, but they're washed, and so heaven is theirs. No, what I think he's saying is, they looked like they participated in all of this. And none of it was real. They were part of the visible church. They were not part of the true church. They were part of Israel, but they weren't true Israel. He goes on. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb has, says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Forgetting that you are cleansed in the most detrimental sense means that you never really were. It's simply something you profess, but you've never possessed the reality thereof. These false teachers know nothing of salvation. And Peter is saying to these Christians, perhaps that reality is true of you. You participate in the church. You claim to know Christ. You say you've been saved but you don't make any effort at these things. You don't give any evidence of these qualities. You lack these. Whenever a sheep is always in the mud, perhaps the simplest explanation is that it is a pig. And therefore... Because of these two reasons, 
If these qualities are yours, it keeps you from being ineffective and unfruitful. And if you lack these, you're blind, nearsighted, having forgotten. And for these two reasons, now can you see how this conclusion that Peter draws lends support to this idea that having forgotten likely means that you never really were cleansed. Because Peter says the conclusion is, therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. How do you confirm an election that happened, Ephesians 1 tells us, before the foundation of the world? How do you confirm a calling that is an act of the sovereign and free God? Well, really, that helps make sense. Those are the only kind of things you can confirm. It doesn't say establish your election. It doesn't say establish your calling. Confirm them. Look for confirmation of them. You cannot cause your calling an election, but you can confirm them. How do you confirm them? Well, the word that you have here is diligent. Be all the more diligent. Is the verb form of the noun you have in verse 5, effort. Be all the more diligent, make every effort. These two commands are nearly identical. Being all the more diligent to confirm your election is making every effort at these. And that that so can be seen when you read the rest of verse 9. Uh, excuse me, verse 10. Therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Not falling is confirming your election. And not falling happens by practicing these. If the promise of verses 3 and 4, God has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, is true of us, then there will be life and godliness. There will be a desire to pursue these things and to add these things, to supplement our faith with these things. And if that's completely lacking... Well, we'll see the implications. If there is no root, no fruit. Therefore, no fruit, the most likely indicator, if there's never been any fruit. Yes, there are seasons in our life where we may look otherwise. But if the overall verdict is no fruit, conclusion, no root. Understanding what is meant by falling here will help illumine this further. To fall doesn't mean simply to stumble in a sin. It doesn't mean that there's no sin. Fall here has the idea of stumbling unto destruction. Falling all together completely, ultimately. Jude 24 says that God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. It's the opposite that's being spoken of here. Whenever you fall, it means though you may have appeared to be part of the body of Christ. This is what true apostasy means. We need to understand apostasy happens, and it happens whenever a person who's claimed and professed and made all appearances otherwise ultimately falls. And what that means is, they were never really cleansed. They were never really true. 
But the best way for us to not stumble by sin, and that I mean you, you completely fall away from the faith. That happens by sin, not, not stumbling in a sin. The best way for us not to stumble by sin is to run after righteousness. Christians are most clumsy when they stand still. We're built like motorcycles. Forward momentum keeps us balanced. It is the saint who practices, practices these things that has assurance that they won't fall, that they won't prove to be apostate, that, that they're truly of Israel. Confirmation is the confirmation of not falling off the mountain happens whenever you're climbing up it. Confirmation of not falling off the mountain happens whenever you're climbing up it. Confirmation that you are not one of those who will fall off into the dark ravine below is found in your going up the mountain towards this goal of glorification. The saints may fall on the mountain, but they do not fall off the mountain. And by God's grace, whenever they do fall, perseverance is one of these things that's been granted to them by Christ. And they get up and by His grace continue on. This warning is for those who simply appear to be on the mountain. Is one of those who will make it to the top. There's a big difference between being on the mountain and making it to the top. There are many who are in the church. They've been baptized. They make a profession of faith. And they will hear those words of Christ. Depart from me. I never knew you. Not I once knew you and then you fouled it up. No, the reason you didn't make it to the top is because I never knew you. You see, these false teachers that Peter will speak of, they arise within the people of God. 2 and verse 1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Beloved, some of you are false. You're false. To the best of my ability, the shepherd's ability, we want to make sure that's not true of your soul. but I don't think you need to assemble a great mass for it to be true to look out at a group, a gathering of people who profess Christ. And yet sadly it be very likely true of, of some in their midst that some are false. They put on a good show. The scariest thing is that we can deceive even ourselves. You're false. And though you see these virtues and you, and you kind of dress your life with them on the outside, 
do you find that, that there's this promise of, of Christ that causes these things to swell in your chest so that you want these to glorify the one who purchased you at so great a cost. And if not, don't try to supplement your life with these things because there's not any faith to begin with. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. and You'll be saved. And oh, how different a promised, empowered effort at these is. Others of you are true. But you have no reason to really believe so at this specific junction in your life. You've grown lazy in your walk with Christ. If you have a kind of assurance that makes it easy for you to sit still, if you have an assurance that's comfortable not making every effort at these things, it's not true assurance. So I plead with you, make every effort at these things. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. But to those who find themselves hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you want to make every effort at these things. I simply admonish you, do so as an expression of faith in your Savior and not confidence in yourself. Make every effort at these assured that these things are yours in Christ. Paul warns us, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So pursue these as a way of supplementing your faith, not as a way of fueling your self-confidence. Pursue these virtues that you have in verses 5 through 7 because of the promises that you have in verses 3 and 4. So as we pursue these things, may we do so as men with chests, men with hearts swelled by the promises of our God. Let's pray. Holy Father, may your Spirit with power cause a deepened faith in all that is ours in Christ so that we make every effort at these things for the glory of our Lord. In His name, Amen.